grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, I'm your host and president of Jigsaw Queensland, Joe Sparrow. Today's guest will be well known to many of you. Thomas Graham is a South African-born adoptee who migrated to Australia 25 years ago and in 2009 started the Australian Journal of Adoption, an online journal providing an independent open access forum for people affected by or involved in adoption. He published 16 volumes focusing on the adoptee experience before hanging up his hat. After the Australian Adoption Journal, he published an adoption blog called Ipsify for three years, offering shorter and personalised interviews and commentary on adoption matters. He was also part of the grassroots adoptee groups that helped set the path for what is now known as Adoptee Rights Australia. In addition, Thomas once ran a Canberra-based adoption support group, sat on the government committee to oversee the implementation of some key recommendations in the Senate report into forced adoption, and then by his own account, just disappeared and withdrew from any involvement in the adoption community. In preparation for today, Thomas noted that over 20 of my previous podcast guests have interacted with him in the past through the journal or other adoption-related activities. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Thomas. I'm thrilled to finally have you on. Thank you, Joe. Um, thanks for the invitation. And uh, my comp- it's good to be here. And my compliments to you and Jigsaw uh, for delivering this podcast because it is an important re- resource for people that are affected by adoption. So well done on producing it. Thank you. And I look. Um, okay, can we start at the beginning? Um, what was it like for you growing up as an adopted child in South Africa? Well, I think just to provide some context for our discussion, I'll try and give a a short snapshot of my first 30 years in in about three minutes, if that's possible. (laughs) Um, I've got the timer on. Go. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was born into the closed adoption era, you know, where I was separated from my mother at birth and given a new identity and family, and my personal records were sealed. And the intention was that I would not know or meet my mother, my family, my father or my first family. You know, that was what the the system was designed to do. And close adoption was practiced in England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, South Africa, Rhodesia, New Zealand, Canada, as well as here in Australia, as we know. So it really had this international footprint, particularly in Commonwealth countries. And so my start in life was not unlike 
many other close adoption babies here in Australia. It was kind of traumatic and terrifying because my mother, you know, my source of life in all its preciousness and vitality was taken from me. So this this life source, you know, whose heartbeat, whose voice, whose smell, whose body sensations I'd come to know in utero were lost to me. Mm-hmm. And my mother was not allowed to hold or see me at birth. Even though she worked as a nurse in the maternity hospital where I was born. Oh, wow. So, you know, and for 10 days, I lay in sensory confusion, you know, waiting in limbo to be allocated to a new family. So it was a cruel, uncertain, and unsettling start to life. And I know you will relate to this because in the beginning of your PhD thesis, which was a memoir about adopted wounds, you wrote, uh, and I quote, my life has two beginnings. The first was my birth, and the second was my adoption, an occasion which marked both a death and a rebirth. So that's how we started our lives. Um, and I was taken into an English-speaking married family, uh, mother, father, they had a biological daughter of their own. Now they practiced British customs and traditions. It was a Catholic household. And my adopted family were kind, loving, and generous people. You know, in this lottery that we we call adoption, you know, I drew a good family. Uh, You know, Deirdre, my adopted mother, was overly protective, uh, ever close, but probably emotionally distant. Jack, my adopted father, was seldom close, as well as emotionally distant. But I was fortunate that um, I had a grandmother that lived with us. So Granny Hilda was, she and I, for some reason, bonded very well. And she was a pivotal factor in my life. And, you know, whenever I think of her, I have this surge of, positive energy. So I grew up in the suburbs in Johannesburg, which is not unlike suburbs in many of our Australian cities. You know, I went to school, church on Sunday, played sport, had holidays, um, listened to the radio because we didn't have TV in those days. It, it was a you know middle-class upbringing in a stable home within a family setting. And I was told early on that I was adopted. Um, But then the subject was taboo. You know, it was never talked about. So like many adoptees, I grew up wondering who I was and where I fitted in. And over the years, um, as a child, I was determined to uh, find my mother, even though I didn't even know her name. And you might ask, well, how could I be so certain about this? Well, a few years ago, an aunt um, who knew me as a young boy um, 
uh, said to me, she once asked me when I was a child, because uh, I always used to save my pocket money, you know, <clears throat> why Why do you save him? What are you saving for? And my response was to find my mother. Mm. And so, you know, from an early age, you know, the, the impact of adoption was quite profound on me. And by nature, I'm introverted. You know, I was thoughtful, I'm independent. You know, I was kind of calm on the outside, but pretty turn on the inside. And so in some ways, I was this compliant, obedient, quiet boy. Um, although I was also rebellious and deviant, particularly when I was in my teenage years. And I learned early to keep my most precious thoughts and feelings um, to myself. Uh, and when it came to who I was, you know, I, I was un unsettled and confused. And when I think back on those first 30 years, um, adoption impacted all nine major decisions or directions in life. And I'll just give you a few examples, you know, in terms of relationships. You know, despite the love and acceptance I had in my, with my, as part of the family, um, you know, when I got to my final two years of school, I asked to go to boarding school to get out of the house because I just didn't feel comfortable there. Um, in my 20s and 30s, I was never confident in settling down, finding a partner, marrying, having a family. You know, I found close attachments hard. And when I look at my education, History was always my strongest subject at school. Uh, when I went to uni, I studied archaeology and religious studies. My career, most of it in those, it was in museums. So there was this pattern of always looking back to the to the to the past and never really focusing on the present or the future. Um, and so at my core, you know, I was always seeking um, a sense of belonging or of meaning. And until, you know, I was 29 years of age, I never had met another adopted person. Uh, I thought I was one of a kind. <laughs> so, you know, those are, you know, that characterizes, um, you know, aspects of what I was, you know, in the first mm -hmm. half of my life, where, as I said, adoption impacted so many of my choices and decisions I've made. Yeah. Um, There's so much of that that I identify with. Thomas, and particularly I was talking to somebody on the weekend, um, we're in a support group actually, and I was describing how I often felt like um, I was a puppet with this hand that was turning my head and my thoughts and 
my lens on life, I guess, in different directions through an adoption lens. And I didn't know that. I didn't understand. I knew something was, but I didn't know what it was. And I suspected it might be something to do with adoption, but we weren't given any um, information about how adoption might impact us when we were young. So we're really quite blind to what that that puppet hand, I guess, was that was turning our lives around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we it because it wasn't talked about and and our parents weren't given any support or information, they were flying blind. Mm-hmm. And everyone worked on this assumption that being a clean slate and a substitute family, we would all live happily ever after. But mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like that, as you no. know, and most other adoptees who are listening to this would also know. Yeah. And what you know, that wasn't the case. So um so yeah, and then you know, I I at about twenty-nine I began my search um to find um to find my mother. Mm-hmm. So and at the time, I mean, what the, the catalyst for that was that I was working in a in a regional museum at the time, and a, a woman by the name of Irma Simpson came into the museum and asked for a photograph of a house, which was a kind of an unusual request. And and I asked her, you know, why did she want it? And she said, "I'm adopted. I'm mm-hmm. looking for my mother, and um, she lived there." You know, and that that was the spark, uh, literally, that ignited my search. And the following day, I mean, Irma, Irma Simpson was her name. She gave me a telephone number of a, of a, an adoption agency in Johannesburg, and I and I called them. And um, that was way back in 1986, and I was given a name and an age of my mother and the place I was born uh, in South Africa on a small piece of paper, you know, and I, I had that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah today. Yeah. Um, so it's one of my um, most prized possessions because I mean, as I think you and a lot of other adoptee people know, that you know that first um, time that we're given the name of our mother, how Mm -hmm. significant and special that is, and. so thereafter, you know, I started the search to find Dorothea. Now that was my mother's name, always, and uh, that took me um, four years. And um, I know we've got lots of other things to talk about, so I won't go into that that long search. And uh, other than to say, you know, it predated the the internet and search engines and social media platforms. You know, it required good old-fashioned detective work. and Yeah, it was hard work back then. Yeah, and with um, you know, the, the um, help of Jenny, who was a dear friend, uh, you know, we found uh, Dorothea in a small town 
in north of Hamburg in, in Germany. Uh, I mean, it was a very exciting and nerve-wracking experience um, and done as it often is in secrecy because, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to impact uh, on my adopted parents, yeah. uh, which I think is a, is a common uh, uncommon thing. Um, and then I was also unsure what I would, would find, you know, would, would my mother be alive? Was she dead? Um, and if she would, and if she was alive, would she welcome me? Yeah. So, so after four years, yes, we found her and she was very much alive and she did want her to see me. Um, so finding her was this exhilarating experience. Um, but meeting her was not so. <laughs> and so, and you might ask why. Well, I think over the decades, because it was decades, you know, I developed this fantasy figure of mother. Mm -hmm. And meeting her was an anticlimax. You know, it was a disappointment. And she was a mother. She was my mother, but yet a complete stranger to me. Mm -hmm. And all I saw was this elderly, gray-haired woman who didn't feel like mother at all, you know. And I say that respectfully um, mm -hmm. in terms of her age at the time. Um, but fortunately, you know, she came to South Africa to see me. And then a year later, I went to Germany to see her and the, and the extended family. And I was also lucky because she was not only willing to meet, but she was also prepared to tell me the circumstances surrounding my conception and my father's name. And, you know, on the question of my father, I never met him because he had died a few years prior to meeting Dorothea. But I do have two half-siblings. A, a brother, half-brother, half-sister. And my half-brother, that is the same father, different mothers, is two days older than me. Oh. Two days, which explains yeah. why Dorothea and I were left high and dry, because my father went off and married the other pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. um, so... In the aftermath, and I think, you know, when quite often, especially when they had uh, used to, many channels used to broadcast reunion, adoption reunions on television, you know, they always had these, these idyllic gatherings and idyllic endings. Well, it didn't really work out that way for me. So in its aftermath, my, my life kind of fell apart. Yeah. Right. So I was on this emotional high, you know, having found my mother, met her, and the extended family. And I really thought, you know, I'd found myself. You know, I'd really, I'd, 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 for everything that I'd looked and searched for, I'd found, and I could now really be myself. So I thought I had to completely restart my life. Um, so I, I resigned from my my long-term secure job. I um, thought I could work as a consultant. I married for the first time. And at my 
at my wedding, I brought my my two sets of parents together for the first time, which was a crazy thing to do in hindsight, you know, because we were all so ill-prepared. Uh, I sold my my apartment I had, um, and I went out and, and sort of worked as a independent consultant. And then within a few years, it all collapsed, you know, and I landed at rock bottom. I had no job, no partner, because I had divorced, no home, and I wasn't clearly connected to my mother or my family. So I had to rebuild my life, and I made one of the best decisions ever. I, I migrated to Australia. To start to start anew, and and with Slabadanka, who's my was my my wife and and new partner at the time, Louis, her son, and a mother-in-law. <laughs> so, and 25 years later, um, you know, I'm still with Slabadanka, and Louis still remains very much part of our family. Um, so yeah, you know that that sort of gives a a basic synopsis mm. of of you know my my birth in South Africa and and my early life and and yeah. finding out to do well searching for Dorothea and finding her and then post reunion everything falling in a heap and then um, deciding to start anew in a new country and mm. I'm and and, and I'm immensely pleased that I did yeah one of the things that you said um Thomas I think so many um adopted people fall into this trap of thinking we're going to find our um our mother and our biological families and it's going to give us the answer to our identity um and then when we do meet them we kind of realize actually that's it's a part of it's a part of that puzzle but it's not that answer like there's a whole lot of other work that has to happen to help with that um and I think thank you so much for sharing that in particular because I think that's something that a lot of us go in hoping you know yeah well I think in you know in those those days we um we were ill prepared I think there's there's much more information these days to to prepare yourself uh, mm. better on both sides and um you know as I said you know bring in my two sets of parents together on my wedding day. You know, it was a crazy thing to do. (laughs) I've done plenty of those crazy things myself, Thomas. (laughs) You know, so, and, you know, they got on well, but it it just, it it just wasn't the right place at the time, you know, to do it. Well, Um, you wouldn't have been settled on such an important day either, because I can, I know whenever I've brought my families together, how I feel inside and it's anything but calm. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. absolutely. So yeah, not an ideal absolutely. day to do that, yeah. 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 So given that so, you were born overseas, um, what was the catalyst for you becoming involved in the adoption community here in Australia when where you've been such an active participant for so many years? Well, when we arrived in Australia, I mean, we started off in, in Wagga, Wagga Wagga, where we mm-hmm. spent five years and... And, um, you know, I was in my 40s then. So my focus became 
you know, settling into a new country and, and sort of raising and supporting a family. So what many people, you know, of my age would have done in their 30s and 40s, I mean, 20s and 30s, I was doing in my 40s. Yeah. And um, and then and then Dorothea, she came and visited us in here in 2005. And the visit didn't go particularly well. Um, there was still a distance between her and me, you know, which I couldn't really understand or resolve. And despite an encounter, I was still restless within myself, right? And and it puzzled me, and it, and it and I and I wanted to know why. And so I I went to an adoption support group called Mosaic in Canberra. It was run by Margaret Green, and um, she did it for years. And she was a late discovery adoptee. And there I was introduced to the primal wound, Nancy Berrier, Berrier's seminal book on understanding the adopted child. And that was a revelation and a game changer for me as you and other adoptees, uh, I think, can attest. Because finally, you know, there was someone who could, who understood and could articulate what it meant to live in this complex emotional landscape of an adopted person. So, you know, it validated our pain and gave us permission to, to have a voice and speak. And so something shifted, you know, within me. Yes, I still had lots to learn and to work through, but reading The Primal Wound and the sequel, you know, Coming Home to Self, The Adopted Child Grows Up, changed me, you know, and in a big way. And the second book, you know, the title of the second book, you know, aptly describes what it felt like, you know, we could come home to self or to myself, within myself. And in a way that, you know, it's the ultimate homecoming. So the primer wound, you know, created this insatiable appetite to know more uh, about adoption and my adoption king, um, because as I mentioned earlier, I'd never met another adopted person until I was over 30. Um, and and also to understand these psychological, emotional, and spiritual aspects of adoption. And by this stage, you know, I'm approaching 50, you know, so I'm bordering on old age. <laughs> Don't say that. So, I'm over 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, um, but, it, you know, at the time it felt, you know, to get to 50, and you're still finding out mm -hmm. who you are and what you are, you know, it, 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 yeah. it, which is symbolic of being adopted. You know, I, I so I'm not, I'm not, um, um, you know, being ageist in any way, but just the, the, the knowledge of reaching half a century and you're mm -hmm. still only scratching the surface about who or what you are. Yeah. And and about this thing, you know, adoption that 
the system that had really handicapped me in so many ways. So I was I wanted to explore, you know, and find out how adoption affected other people, you know, so and so I could understand myself uh, a bit better. And at that time, quality info and sources were hard to find in one place. So I started my own, which was um, uh, Australian Journal of Adoption and AJA. And, you know, serendipitously, at around that time, Slobodanka, my wife, worked at the the National Library of Australia, and they were they were prepared to host a suite of online journals using what they called open journal systems. It were they were developed by Canadian universities, and the whole point of that was to make knowledge more accessible mm-hmm. to everyone. So, whatever the theme or uh, if someone wanted to create a journal, they had the software to do that, and the National Library was prepared to host those journals. So um, in discussing with Bobby over the dining room table, I thought, why don't I just start a journal about adoption? And, um, and you know, that's what I did. And in a, in a strange quirk of fate, I found myself at the right place and the right time and moment in history uh, when my adopted country, Australia, was about to explore forced adoption in a very big way. In the journal, um, I mean, I know so many people who've had articles in there and you gave a voice to a lot of people, which, you know, at the time, as you said, there wasn't many other um, vehicles. And that's really incredible um, that you gave people that opportunity. And the journal um, was, it was very active and it saw some incredible adoption events here in Australia. Can you refresh our memories as to some of the events that happened during the time that the journal was active? Yeah, there was a lot happening. You know, we um, they they had a Senate inquiry and a federal inquiry into forced adoption, and they called for submissions and they had meetings. Uh, that inquiry produced a report and and with recommendations. And and I you know I'd like to certainly thank you know Senators Rachel Seward and were who ran that. Um, they did, you know, an incredible job. And in addition to that, the Australian Institute of Family Studies, they they did an investigation into, into past adoptions and and that informed the, the Senate inquiry. The Monash University, they were doing a history project on 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 adoption. Uh, we then had all these apologies, you know, every every state and ter- and only the ACT of the territories and then we had a, the national apology as well and the the national archives of australia they did a website on adoption and they created an exhibition without consent which toured um nationally and also at that time it was the beginning of 
of when Facebook took off and Facebook groups took, um, you know, came into vogue and, you know, and that was really one of the first times that adopted people um, could find their king, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and meet up, um, you know, practically 24-7 if they wanted to. And um, and then also there was the the tenth national uh, adoption conference. Now I think that's the last one they they ever held was, uh, yeah. back in 2013, which was held in in Melbourne. And and you know there I presented a paper, and um, which you know I looked at a few days ago, and it's still. Still has currency and, re and relevance um, because it was titled "Living with Adoption," you know, a quest for hope, healing, and happiness. And um, it's still very much um, what a lot of us as adopted people do. We, you know, we seek hope and healing and happiness. So it was a very exciting and, and dynamic period in which to participate with all these things happening. And um, I jumped in, you know, I got involved on many levels. I made submissions. I attended three of the apology events in person. I sat on committees. I met many mothers and fathers and adoptees. And I even opened the Without Consent exhibition when it was hosted in Wagga, you know, where we started uh, as a new migrant in, us, in, in Australia. So, as I said at the beginning, it was, you know, I just happened to be uh, at the right place in the right time with all these extraordinary things happening, uh, which related to something that was so deeply personal and um, which, you know, when I was growing up, I couldn't talk about or, mm -hmm. or, or find, uh, you know, very little information. And people would find that odd because, you know, if you put adopted person, type adopted person into Google today, I did that a few days ago. I think there's, there's over about 160 million, you know, references. And, you know, that, that just wasn't there when in, in the time period that I, um, you know, grew up. Um, so, yes, it was an exciting period. And, and uh, you know, I'm very um, uh, thankful that I was, I was part of it and could contribute something, you know, in terms of uh, what AJA was. What did you learn and take away from your involvement in these events over this period? And I wonder what has stayed with you as being of real importance. Uh, many things. I mean, the it was a, a privilege and an opportunity to witness and be part of and write about these events, especially people's uh, personal stories. I mean, they taught me so much about, you know, to validate my own experience of loss and disconnection. but also to build, you know, my own life. And I'm sure you might feel the same way when you think about your 60-plus podcasts that you've done for Adopt Perspective. Um, and then, secondly, I mean, uh, how mothers suffered. Right? 
And they also led the fight for decades for recognition and validation and acknowledgement that what they went through in losing their children was cruel. It was unjust. You know, it caused them hurt, harm, and shame, which they didn't deserve. And so personally, you know, reading, listening, speaking to mothers, you know, I finally understood and could reconcile and with that question that niggled me for large periods of my life, you know, why did my mother give me away? You know, how could she? And and basically, she had no choice. She was given no choice at the time. And at her most vulnerable, she was steered towards adoption. You know, being told this would be the best for me, although hurtful to her. And not what and it's not something that she wanted. So like many mothers, she, she suffered deeply. And so in talking to, to other mothers, I could grasp the full magnitude of Dorothea's pain and giving me up you know, to the system of adoption. And that helped me a lot. You know, it, it, uh, it removed a lot of the anger you know, that I carried for a long time. And another thing as well, that, you know, after all these inquiries, uh, you know, Senate, AIFS, AIFS, the Monash, I think people were generally surprised that adoptees were not forever happy, trouble-free individuals who lived this perfect and idyllic life and they substitute families. That didn't, that wasn't part of the script or the fairy tale, you know, when closed adoption was created. Um, I think people were generally surprised that like our mothers, we wanted and at times demanded acknowledgement, validation about our loss and what we had suffered and which we could never mourn or grieve. And we wanted, you know, services to deal um, or offer, you know, to services around finding our information or with um, in therapy for um, and And I think many people weren't sure how to handle us uh, as we were seen as being forever the adopted child and, you know, rescued and silenced. And the system of adoption didn't want to hear, you know, we were unhappy and had suffered harm. And they couldn't accept us now as adults with our own experience. We wanted to speak. And they wanted us to remain you know, obedient, com compliant, you know, the adopted child that had been rescued. And I think this this continues in, in some, some areas because it's always difficult for adopted people to have a meaningful voice at the table when it comes to adoption. Because I think people are ever fearful 
that we will challenge the age-old belief that adoption is a benevolent act that is always beneficial to the child. Um, and it isn't. You know, it isn't harm-free. And we have to remind the system of that fact, you know, even if they don't like it. And just two last points. You know, adoption, as you will well know, um, and many, many other people who are listening would know, is, is complex. Uh, the impacts are profound. They're personal. They're intergenerational. You know, they affect our mothers, our fathers, our, our siblings, our grandparents, and also the adopted families themselves. And, um, you know, it's complex. And the apologies were important. And we did need to hear the words, you know, we are sorry, and this, this happened to you, and we will make sure it doesn't happen again. And, but many, of the, many people didn't hear those words. Um, and um, they also, and many believe there needs to be more to be done regarding tangible support you know, with dealing with negative health, negative health outcomes or redress. So there's there's still a lot of hurt and anger out there. And I think, um, I mean, you and I were both at the 10th anniversary um, uh, of the commemoration of the apology earlier this year. And yes, there was still hurt and anger and agitation. Um, and... Uh, so yes, there's there's probably still a lot more that needs to be done, and it's not surprising that um, you know the Victorians they went and did their own in, you know inquiry into adoption after the National Inquiry, and I think the Western Australians are doing something similar as we speak. So so um, yeah, there's probably a lot more that needs to be done. conversation that I had with Thomas was so amazing that we ended up going well over time so I decided to um, turn it into two episodes instead of one so that we didn't have to edit it down or have a podcast that was too long we didn't want it too long um, so I'm going to end things here and um, we'll pick up um, in the next episode to finish the conversation with Thomas Graham. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 if you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. 
Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Adoption.